So, where are we up to? Watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch yourself and the teaching closely. How? By persisting in it. Uh, by, by remaining in it. Not just in it, but in them. Both in the life and in the teaching. Both in yourself and in the doctrine. Why? Well, look at the consequence of doing so. It's an extraordinary consequence. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, of course you won't. Of course, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who saves us. We're not the saviours. And yet, and yet it is our task to save ourselves and our hearers in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an extraordinary statement here. That as we persist in the word of God, as we persist in it both in our teaching and in our living, we bring salvation to others as well as maintaining ourselves in our salvation. You mustn't push it too far, as if you could save yourself without the Lord Jesus Christ, nor must you push it too far as if Jesus can't save you without you, that somehow you've got to add to what Jesus has done that semi-Pelagianism is a heresy as, as old as Pelagius. So it's not that. But the activity we're engaged in is the activity of salvation. That's what we're doing. And the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ has won on the cross comes to us and to others through the gospel. And the gospel comes through gospel preachers. It's a funny thing, a, a strange sign of God and his kindness and his plans and purposes. You see, if I were God, which we're all very glad I'm not, but if I were God, I wouldn't entrust the gospel to humans. I'd have angels flying mid-heaven with trumpets and electronic music and all kinds of... There's all kinds of ways of getting people to... Be, but that's not the way it is. God has entrusted the gospel to sinners like the Apostle Paul. Counted him faithful to take the message. And the message is the message of the cross... And we are very weak and frail. And in the, in the weakness and frailty of us, God brings his message of salvation to others. And so we watch our life and doctrine for the salvation of ourselves and for others. This, this letter, you see, is a missionary letter. It's about the proclamation of the gospel salvation for others. That's what Paul was on about in all his life. But in order to do it, we've got to teach the truth and exemplify the truth. Indeed, sometimes Paul took actions against his own interest in order to model the truth. So the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, we worked. Not that we didn't have the right to receive money, as he says in 1 Corinthians 9, we did have the right to receive money, but we worked in order to give you a model, in order to give you the example of the importance of work and not to be a labor, not to be a burden upon other people. And so our lives, as well as our teaching, the things we say, teach the truth of the gospel that saves other people. So that the book is therefore about missionary behavior in the household of God. 
He, Timothy's task is not just to go around and charge people not to speak this error, stop people not teaching, commanding this and speak. It's not just speaking. It's living as well as speaking. And so, go back into the behaviour patterns that we see. At the end of chapter 3, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. It's a book about conduct and behaviour. So what does he want us to do in the household of God? Chapters 2 and 3 are household instructions. Chapter 2 starts off with that great important behaviour pattern of prayer. First of all, chapter 2, verse 1, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We need to be praying for those in authority, not just for the political leaders, kings, but also in all in high positions, the heads of, 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 uh, of big private corporations. Their lives influence the society around about it. The heads of universities, the heads of schools, for justices and for, uh, for judges and for all who are in authority, for the police forces, for the military forces, all who are in authority, because these people create the society in which the gospel can go forth. And these people create the society which clamps down on the gospel going forth. And so the prey is for a godly life in our society. Our Australian society, you see, is now promoting godlessness and ungodly characteristics of life is what is being produced by our leadership at every point. At every point? Yes, at every point, really. The media are that, the education departments are like that. See, the thing that drives Australia is materialism. That is the great enemy of the gospel in Australia, materialism. We're a very wealthy country, therefore we have no contentment. We're always wanting more, bigger, better, newer, all the time. And so we're doing away with weekends. We're doing away with time off for family and for life. We're doing away with those taking a day off because we want to make more money. We want more pleasures. We want more. And we've got to pray for our government that they would make decisions for the good of the people, the real good of the people, that we might live a life that is godly and a life of peace and calm so that we may get on with gospel preaching. See, prayer in the household of God is very important and it's particularly important for men. Look at 2 verse 8. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarrelling. There's not many verses which tell men what men to do as opposed to women. Uh, but this is one of those verses. Verses 9 the following is about what women should do as opposed to men. But verse 8 is a men's verse. Prayer is men's work. But nearly every church I've been, it's the women who lead in prayer. Every little prayer group I go to, it's the women who always open in prayer. They're the ones who pray more often. But what we're talking about is men are to pray. 
the uh, old NIV had this completely wrong. It said, I want everywhere men to raise uh, hands, as if the raising of hands was the important bit, but it actually misunderstands. The verb is actually, I want men to pray. ESV is correct, and I think the new NIV is correct. I want men to pray everywhere. Prayer is our activity. But notice the nature of the prayer that he's talking about here. Lifting holy hands. What are holy hands? Well, who could show me an unholy hand? Anyone lift an unholy hand? Go on. Someone must have an unholy hand. No, no, that's just a sinner's hand. (laughs) An unholy hand? Well, look at the verse again. I desire that in every place men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. Show me an unholy hand. Yeah, there it is. Lift it up high, Ben, so we can all see. The fist is the unholy hand, isn't it? That's what he's talking You see, the opposite of prayer is anger and fighting and quarrelling. You see it in James chapter 4, right? Why is it that you don't have things? Because you fight and quarrel. You do not ask is why you do not have. Because what we do is we fight with each other rather than asking God to give us. And when we do ask, we ask for the wrong reason to spend on our passions, you adulterous people, in love with God and the world at the same time. Not possible. James chapter 4 is the background to what is being spoken here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're to be men of prayer, my brothers. Because it's men's work, not women's work. It's men's work to pray. Let there be men's prayer meetings. Because it is our work. But this requires men to be humble. Not quarrelsome. Testosterone must be put aside for the sake of dependence upon God. We're, you see, by nature the fix-it men. We'll do it ourselves when we must be men who trust in God, it requires a degree of personal security to be willing to depend upon another. Those who fight most are the most insecure. And women, women are to be clothed. Their their behaviour is to be that of good works. It's a great problem we have here. We're so wound up with feminism these days, we don't read this passage properly either. What is it that he commands women to do? He commands them to learn. The principal verb of verse 11 is to learn. Women are not to leave learning up to men, any more than men are to leave prayer up to women. The women are to learn. But women are to learn not in order to have authority, Women shall learn in order to address themselves, dress themselves, I'll say it again, dress themselves appropriately. It's not for men to tell women how to dress, it's for women who understand godliness to know how to dress. And the essence of the great female clothing is good works. That is the essence of the Christian woman's apparel, is her good works that reflects her understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see how in so many cultures it's all about men telling women what clothing to wear. Be it on one extreme, where they're covered up from head to toe, or the other extreme, where they're uncovered from head to toe. 
be it the Western world or the Eastern world, it's still men telling women what they should be wearing rather than women learning the word of God so that they know how to adorn themselves in the good works that befit godliness. And then we go to the overseers and the servants. Now, my dear brothers, I'm not picking a fight with you and I know this is completely rare and weird and no one actually believes what I believe at this point, but it's not about elders. The passage actually doesn't mention the elders. Indeed, the word is not there. I've got some commentaries at home which says elders and deacons. It's fascinating because the word elder doesn't occur and the word deacon is, I think, a mistranslation. Uh, It's about overseers. And the ESV, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, no, it's, it's, it's anyone who aspires to oversee. The word office is not there in the Greek either. It's just anyone who aspires to oversee. And it's a task, not an office. Right? Because what they want is a noble task. Overseeing is a noble task. It's a good task. right? And it's a matter of responsibility. Christian leadership is responsibility. It's not having power and authority, it's taking responsibility. It's the opposite of the kind of power and authority that people aspire to. And so it's caring for your family. Managing your own household is the task because it's managing the household of God. But I I take it that what we're really talking about is the character of an overseer who runs his own household and the character of the servants in the household. Because the word deacon is, is it's a transliteration rather than a translation. You've just turned the Greek letters, diakonos, into English letters, deacon. But every church has a different deacon. Roman Catholic deacons, Anglican deacons, Baptist deacons, Presbyterian deacons are all completely different. So there's not one English word that means deacon. And the word deacon is only used twice in the New Testament... Actually, the word diakonos is used about 20 times, but just twice we translated deacon for no good reason, other than we've got deacons in our church and we've got to find them in the Bible somewhere, haven't we? So here's the place. I told you, no one else believes what I'm selling you, right? I know, I know, this is, this is the man who... I'm just telling you what it actually is. I think it's talking about household owners and servants, because the ancient world was full of servants, and slaves and household owners and that's what it's talking about how we should live as God's people if you rule a household or if you and the people who rule in the household of God are the people who rule in their own household because if you don't rule your own household how will you know how to rule God's household and so he's not expecting in your church to have the servants be the household runners of the church This is anti-egalitarian, and because it's anti-egalitarian, no one wants to believe in the 21st century what I've just said. So I'm sorry, but I I think we're reading ourselves into the Bible at this point, rather than... And this is... It's not because I'm Anglican, right? What I've just said is as un-Anglican as you could go, because they all want bishops, priests and deacons. I just want what the Bible says. That's a simpler thing. And so... I don't think it's got anything to do with... I'm just warning you. We're making our church structures control our Bible reading. Which is why 
we can't agree about church structures when we're all Bible readers. What, why is it that people from different denominations have found in the Bible their own denomination? Shall I put it that way? And I think it's because we're not thinking the same thoughts the Bible is thinking. I think we've grown up in our traditions, old and new, and I think I'll move on. Uh, what is important, though, in both the servants and the overseers is their lives. And what are the characteristics of the lives in particular that he warns about? Not lovers of money. Every time there's a list, lovers of money is in the list. Not given to too much wine. Every time you have this kind of list, alcohol is warned as a danger. I like Lemuel's mother. She gave good advice on this matter. Hands up those who, at this moment, can't quite remember who Lemuel's mother is. Ah, the rest of you know. Good. Well, pay attention to Lemuel's mother because she I think some of you just fibbed. You don't remember who Lemuel's mother is, but you didn't put your hand up. But she's there. Lemuel's mother, you see, she says, give strong drink to those who are suffering, but it's not for leaders. It's not for rulers. Because the strong drink will turn your minds from giving justice and righteousness. So the old Methodist tradition was you didn't have to sign the pledge of no alcohol if you're a member, but you did if you're a minister. And there's a truth in that, my friends. And the way in which the Bible keeps talking about money and keeps talking about strong drink when it's talking about people in oversight and people in ministries, seems to me that we should be saying something about it. And I confess to seeing these two issues as great problems in our society of Christian leadership. And then the third one that is mentioned each time is faithful to one's own wife. You've got to be a, a one a one woman man is actually what the Greek says. Just as the widow is to be a one man woman. We've got to be faithful to our own spouse. And again, why do people leave public ministry of the gospel? Adultery, sexual immorality is the thing that leads people out. Money, money problems, alcohol, drug addictions. They're the three reasons in the 21st century in Sydney we've seen people leaving public ministry. It's right here. It's as old as 1 Timothy. My brothers take stock take stock here. It's really important. These are the things. Uh, being blessed with a long marriage as Helen and I have been, we're coming up, we're in our 50th year now and it has a great effect upon our society when we talk like that because divorce is so rampant in our society. Adultery is so rampant in our society and when young people meet us and they know that we've been married together faithfully as husband and wife for 50 years, they are deeply impressed because it is something that is so radically different. And what's more, they love it. They want it for themselves. It's one of those things that you know when they talk to them, they say, that would be wonderful. How did you do so? Well, it wasn't that very hard. I just picked the right woman. Now, 
you can't have that. You can't find your own. <laughs> no, no, it's a hard work. It's always a hard work. But it's the work of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that you must be doing that. And since my youth, I've been, all my life, I've been a teetotaler. And I still commit to not drinking alcohol. And I've never looked back at that as a bad choice. It's a good choice. Not that I think alcohol is sinful. It's not sinful. But it is given by God to make miserable people happy. I'm not a miserable person. <laughs> yeah? It's the ancient world palliative care. I don't need it at this stage. I have had pethidine. I do like pethidine, so that's all right. But alcohol's no good. But pethidine's lovely. Actually, pethidine's been taken off the market. It's so powerful a drug in Australia. Now, pain relief is a right thing, and alcohol can be used for it. But when your pain is nothing other than boredom, when your pain is just social inabilities, when your pain, this is not the use of alcohol. This is a very bad, as a, as a pleasure resort, it is very bad. Do not get caught up in it. And money, it really is so important to be generous. Our gospel is the gospel of generosity. If the ministers are not generous, do not be surprised that the congregation is not generous because they haven't understood the gospel because they do not see the gospel in the generosity of our lives. That's, it's really important. I had terrific fights in my parish council, whatever you're going to call it in yours. Terrific fights, which were the best fights we ever had about money. They were terrific. I fought against them giving me any more money, and they fought to give me more money. Now, I know that's terrific because put it the other way around. How would you like to be in the church where you are fighting to get more money and they're fighting to give you less? At that point, resign. You're in the wrong place. But when you are in the council and you're saying, no, no, don't give me more money. We want to spend more money planning a new church. We want to do this. We've got other things to do than just give me more money. And when the people are saying, but we want to look after you properly, you are in heaven, aren't you? That's the best fight to have. Where does it come from? It comes from you. It comes from your freedom, your contentment that you have to learn, both in the wealth and in, and in poverty. Learning contentment in wealth is very difficult. You think getting more money will make you content? No, getting more money makes you discontent. It's the exact reverse. And so you need to learn generosity. You need to practice generosity. You must never be a lover of money. Here are the household rules that are laid out for us, you see. And there are other things too, not being, uh, being above reproach and so on, which are important. The, the great Billy Graham rule, which amuses me now, Billy Graham would never be seen in a room, would never go into a room with a woman by himself other than his wife. So every time he went to a hotel, someone else would go in ahead to make sure there was no woman in the room, he would never be alone with another woman other than his wife. The Vice, Prince, Vice President of America, Mr Pence, he follows that rule and has been attacked by the feminists for it because they're saying that means the women don't have equal access to power because they can't come and meet you one-to-one -to, -one to discuss anything. That was before Harry Weinstein 
and the whole Me Too movement. He's not criticised for it now, like he was just a couple of years ago, because now you can't have it both ways, although the feminists always want it both ways. You can't have it both ways, can you? That powerful men are allowed to meet privately with women. That has got to be a recipe for disaster. My brothers, you are powerful men if you're in Christian leadership. Therefore, you must not be in positions. You must be above reproach. Where no one can actually speak ill of you. Because in speaking ill of you, they speak ill of our Lord and Saviour and his people. Above reproach, faithful, and so on. You see, those who are false teachers have departed from the faith. They deny creation, but that's not for us. What we've got to do is teach what accords with godliness. Because godliness is for this world and the world to come. And so he then spells it out in chapter 5 when he talks about honouring. Honouring widows in 5 verse 3 following. The uh, elders are to be honoured in the second half of chapter 5. And the masters are to be honoured by their slaves in chapter 6. Slaves is a different word to servant. But it's chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which I really love. The older I get, the more I like it, really. <laughs> Do not rebuke an older man. See, it's a good verse. I love this verse. It's growing on me, this one. I'll read it again for you. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, in younger men as brothers, older men as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. You do not treat people as people. You treat people as older than you or younger than you, as men or as women. People don't come just as people. And the way you relate to them differs depending on gender, depending on age. But notice, brothers, you look up to your elders, but you never look down to your juniors. Right? You, you treat the older as a father, but you treat the younger as a brother and as a sister. And notice again the sister with absolute purity. And what about the older woman? As mothers. If you don't learn from your mother, you're a fool. God gives you mothers to teach you how to live. So listen to the older women in their wisdom. Not the old wives' tales, myths, but the older women's wisdom is important to listen to. So you treat them as, a, as, as, a, as you would your mother. A lovely little verse in uh, Romans 16 about uh, Greek Rufus and his mother who was a mother to me. Love that little phrase. And you can imagine the missionary very easily and the way in which some women actually do care so much for those of us who travel in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you honour widows and he lays out there your honouring of the elders. But now the word elder there in verse 17 is just the same as the word older man in verse 1. You can't make an elder. That's not a possibility. Uh, an elder is an older. If you want to be older, just hang around. <laughs> then you will be. But, you know, I, I know so the Mormons, they go around saying, I'm Elder Smith, they're 20. And I say, that's Elder Smith, elder than who? Are you my elder? You don't look older than me. How can you be my elder? You say, 
You, but who do you appoint as oversight? Ah, elders. That's who you appoint an oversight. Right? But you don't appoint elders to be elders. That's why he can talk about, in 1 Peter 3, the older men and then the younger men. No one, no one, no church I know appoints youngers. But that's what it's being spoken. Now, the elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. Because the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out its grain and the labourer deserves his wages. But you treat them with honour. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses, uh, which is true of a charge against anybody uh, in the Old Testament law. But those who persist in sin, well, they're going to be rebuked at the level at which they practice their life. You rebuke in the presence of all. You don't rebuke all people in the presence of all, but the elder who takes some leadership, some public responsibility, well, that public responsibility carries with it then the public rebuke that comes. And you do it, why? So that others might fear. And you do it without partiality. You're not showing any favouritism because God does not show favouritism. There's a verse there, verse 22, which is really very strange. Uh, Sorry, verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Again, you see, well, the purpose of alcohol has got to do with your sufferings, not got to do with pleasure-seeking. But why why he says it in the middle of this verse, I do not know. Uh, as a, when, you, when you come to preach this passage and you try and structure your sermon, verse 23 just sits there to irritate you <laughs> and to show that you will never be competent, ultimately. Right? And then he goes on to teach what we should be doing in terms of money. But the last little section I draw your attention to, the, the riches down there in verse 17, and notice it's not give up your riches, it's to be generous with them. Right, uh, it's the right attitude to them. But the key is six eleven. But as for you, O man of God, what's the man of God doing? There's a whole series of verbs, strong verbs: flight, pursuit, fight, hold, keep. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life which, to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things in Christ Jesus, who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the activities of the man of God. There's the character of the man of God. We are the men who flight, we flee from this love of money that so corrupts us. Flee from it, my brothers. Do not play with it. Flee, and then pursue. So just as you're running away, you've got to run after something else. What are we pursuing? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness and gentleness. 
These we should be putting our attention on. You know, lovely verse in uh, Philippians 4, verse 8, isn't it? 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. People have all kinds of funny mottos on walls, etc. I've never seen this one much, but I think it's one of the best ones to put up. I've always pondered about putting it up in my study. You know, Helen, I don't want it now. But it's the one that I need on the study wall, in a sense, isn't it? What should I be thinking? What I fill my mind with should be these things. These are the things that I'm to pursue, to chase after, to, to prosecute, to persecute, are these things. And then, fight. Oh, yes, we are to fight. But the fight we fight is the good fight of faith. And so we take hold of the eternal life, which, because our gospel is about eternity. It's not just about this world. It's about the eternal life to which you are called and which you made the good confession in the presence. And so you are to keep the commandment. Our only problem here is we're not sure which one he means when he says the commandment at this point. The commandment of the whole epistle, the commandment to, to, to rebuke those who are false teachers in the first place. But whatever it is, however you keep it, the important part is to keep it unstained and free from reproach. The manner in which you keep the commandment is critical at this point. And so then he gives the advice to the rich of this present age not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of wealth, but rather on the kingdom of God. Well, our lives, you see. 1 Timothy, it's a great book. That little verse in 4.11 is not a bad summary of the book as to what Timothy's to do. He's to persist in his life and doctrine, in, in his godliness, in himself and his teachings. Because by so doing, he saves himself and his hearers. But it's both and not either or, because both work together, right? Character, convictions. That's where your competencies make sense. But without character, without convictions, that's where your competency is a menace to the gospel, because you will mislead people terribly.